Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's first reading comes from Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Uh, Our next reading comes from Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. I've got a question for us this morning, and I want you to remember, safe space, we can be honest. Hey, John. How's it going, man? It's going really Uh, good. Good. I, I want you to raise your hand if you have a tattoo. Okay. Look around. We can take in this number. I bet there were a lot of disappointed parents at one point in our lives. Okay. Related question for us. And again, safe space. How many of you think that I have a tattoo? Okay. I give off some tattoo vibes, I guess. That's good for me to know. Uh, I can't think about the text that's before us today without thinking about tattoos which is not a logical place for me to go, so let me explain why that is. When I was a senior in college, I was obsessed with Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I thought, yeah, that's what the real Christians do. They take up their cross. I was kind of angsty. I don't know if anybody can relate to being an angsty young Christian who knew what a real Christian looked like over and against everybody else. And so I was really considering getting a tattoo of a cross with Matthew 16, 24 over my heart. But I also know about myself that I very regularly look back at past decisions I've made and cringe. (laughs) And so I thought, I don't know if I'm a tattoo person. And to put your suspicion to rest, I don't have a tattoo. I didn't get this tattoo. But what I committed to was I said, what I'm going to do is for one year, 
I'm going to draw a cross over my heart with my cruddy black Crayola marker that I had in my dorm room, and I'm going to try it on. I'm going to see how it feels for me to have this on myself. And it became this kind of ritual in my life where every morning I'd wake up, I'd shower, and I'd draw on my cross. And I would think to myself of Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so I tell that to you not because I'm going to ask us all to draw crosses on ourselves, but just to say I have spent a lot of time chewing and internalizing on this verse in particular, this idea in particular, and I want to spend some time today thinking about what does it mean for us as Christians in a modern setting to also take up our cross and follow Jesus. So before we get there, I want to establish a little bit of context. The last time I preached to y'all, I was actually preaching the Transfiguration, which comes immediately after our verses for today. So we're going backward in time. This is like if Christopher Nolan were doing a sermon series. We're moving backwards in the text. And what was driving the text at the Transfiguration was this question that had been introduced into the narrative, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? All these people are asking this question. And Peter, in the verses that come just before where we are today, he answers and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Anointed One, our Savior, To which Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Yes, I am the Christ. And then it gets a little bit confusing for the disciples. Because their understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah comes into direct conflict with what Jesus tells them in Matthew 16, 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, ultimately leading to his death. And so what's happening in this moment is Jesus says, yes, I am the anointed one, the one who's been set apart, but I have been set apart as a sacrifice. I've been set apart as an offering for your sins to atone for your iniquities. And I want you to zoom in here, pay attention to verse 21. He says that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer these things. It's not that Jesus just recognizes the political climate and that he's going to come into conflict. He's saying he must go because he's saying it's the purpose for which he has been sent, to be poured out as an offering for sins, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in this place where Jesus has said, this is the purpose for which I've come, this is what it means for me to be your Messiah, we get an episode where Peter corrects Jesus, which is a bold thing to do. I mean, in general, it would be bold for a disciple to presume to correct their teacher, but especially given what has just taken place, Peter has just correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, and immediately after that, he says, hey, let me correct your understanding of what it means for you to be the Messiah. This is an odd point, but the thing that's funny about it is Peter's correction to Jesus actually comes from a place of faith. Peter is believing, no, you're the conqueror. You're the victorious one. What are you talking about with death? You're going to reign eternally as the true son of God. Why are you talking in this way? So Peter, from a place of faith, is thinking, Jesus, you're king. Don't talk about dying. But Peter's missing how he will be saved. He's missing the path to the throne comes through the cross, through sacrifice. So Peter is offering an objection to Jesus out of a true root of faith, perhaps misapplied, He's also offering an objection out of fear. And Peter, he's thinking to himself, okay, I've chosen to follow you, Jesus. 
I've given up, given up my career. I've left my home. I've been going on this preaching circuit with you. And now you're telling me you're going to die? He's thinking to himself, I've bet on you, and it seems like I've bet on the wrong guy. Have you all seen the movie A Knight's Tale? It's a classic, right? There's this scene in A Knight's Tale. For those of you who don't know it, Heath Ledger, he's posing as a knight so he can participate in these jousting tournaments. He's trying to win glory and fame and honor and riches. And he's kind of turned a corner in his jousting career. He's getting really good. And he's got this entourage that's been following him around. And there's this scene in the movie where they place a huge bet on Heath Ledger for him to win. And unbeknownst to them, Heath Ledger has gone to his love interest in the movie and said, I'm going to intentionally lose to prove to you that I don't care about winning, I care about you. And there's this great montage in the movie where it's just Heath Ledger sitting on a horse taking lance after lance after lance in the chest while his entourage cringes with each blow, not only because they're watching him get hit, but they're thinking to themselves, I just bet on this guy, and he's losing on purpose. This was his plan. And Peter is having a moment of, what have I done? I've chosen to follow somebody who just told me I am going to be publicly executed. This does not bode well for Peter. And these two things that Peter is putting forward at this moment in time, a true root of faith misapplied, Jesus, you are the king who will reign. Doesn't that mean that I will experience your reign? And a posture of fear, Jesus, what do you mean that you're going to die? I don't know what that means for me. These can very often characterize our own discipleship. That we look at Jesus and we say, I have this faith, this is not how I thought this was going to play out. What does it mean for me to follow after you? So Peter is voicing these things to Jesus, and Jesus responds in a way that I think it feels weird because it's so intense. I actually think that we can kind of laugh at this verse. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And we've kind of co-opted this language into saying things like, not today, Satan, which is like, haha, funny. But the reason we've done that is because it feels so uncomfortable to read this verse. We have to laugh at it to not feel uncomfortable about it. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. In one moment, he's confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And in the next, Jesus is telling him, get behind me, Satan. That has to be emotional whiplash. What's going on at this moment? So if we're thinking about how Jesus is communicating how he's trying to instruct his disciples. And further, if we're thinking about how Matthew is setting up his gospel account, I think what Jesus is doing at this moment is he's trying to draw a direct connection between Peter's actions in this moment and the only other place in our narrative that Satan makes an appearance, which is at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So back when Jesus was baptized, way back in chapter 3, there's this public display in which God affirms, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately following that, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by Satan. And that temptation consists of Satan coming to Jesus over and over again with these tests by which he says, hey, you don't have to take up the cross. There are other paths by which you can prove that you are the son of God. Why don't you turn these stones into bread and feed yourself? Why don't you use your own power to enrich yourself? Why don't you cast yourself off of the top of the temple? Surely the Father will catch you if you're the Son. Why don't you bow down to me and I will have all the nations of the world bow down to you? Because ultimately that's where we're headed, right? 
And in each one of these things, Jesus, quoting scripture, is given an opportunity to deny Satan's temptation that he's placed before him and say, no, my path is the path of the cross. And Satan isn't the only one to introduce this kind of temptation to Jesus in our narrative. We see the crowds present this to Jesus. They want to seize him. They want to make him king. And Peter stands in the same kind of place before Jesus now. The person who he's just confessed, this will be the rock upon whom I will build my church, has become a stumbling block for Jesus. Standing in his way and telling him, you don't have to take up the cross, you can just rule and reign. And Peter is missing it. He's missing that Jesus needs to accomplish something. He must die. It's not that he's going to die. He must die. What Jesus tells him in this moment when he says, get behind me. It's harsh. It is a rejection. But I also think we miss something that's going on. So there's an idiom that Jesus is using here. To be behind somebody is literally to be their follower. When Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, he's rejecting his offer that he could take another path than the cross, but he's also saying, hey, your place is as a follower to me. So it's not just a rejection, it's a reorientation. Peter, in your misapplied faith, you've misunderstood my path to victory. That doesn't mean that you're out. It means get back to following. Get back in a posture where you can pursue the path of your master. And Jesus here in 1623, he says that the issue that Peter has is his mind is on not the concerns of God, but human concerns. So what he's telling Peter is, we need to get you thinking in a way that is not about what you stand to gain, but instead about what can be given so that all might gain. Jesus is telling Peter, I've come not to enrich myself, but to give of myself in order that all might be enriched. And Jesus, he continues this line of thinking in turning to the disciples, and he clarifies, hey, I didn't misspeak just now. I didn't misunderstand what was being put forward. I'm going to die, and you are going to take up your cross if you're going to follow me. You're going to deny yourself and enact the same death that I'm living. And for the disciples who are originally hearing this, this is how many of them will die. They will die literally as martyrs. Y'all remember that we sponsor a school in Lebanon that serves Syrian refugees? We partner with an organization called Ananias House for that work. And if you're not on their email updates, I would really encourage you to sign up for them. They've been sending out a series of prayer requests recently because there's a man who ministers with them who has been kidnapped from his home and is currently being physically persecuted for the faith that he holds. And every time I read those email updates calling for prayer, it's a reminder to me that this man is living out Matthew 16, 24. That in holding to his faith, he is taking up his cross and denying himself. And I say that because I can get so preoccupied with my privileged little slice of the Christian life here in America that I often lose touch with what the global church is enduring in certain places. It's a reminder to me to be steadfast in prayer and to be generous with my finances for people who are in places and locations like that. It's a helpful reorientation for me. I say that because for the global church, there are people to whom Matthew 16, 24 is literally being enacted. And I think that's good for us to remember. But also sometimes it feels weird to say something like that because then I'm going to finish out the rest of this sermon and you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not facing physical persecution. 
How do I enact Matthew 16, 24? And I, it's a good question. It's what I hope we get to by the end of this sermon. I just want to call it out. I think we can continue to take up our cross even if we're not facing bodily threats to ourselves. So what does this look like for us? What does it mean for us to take up our cross? And as I've been thinking about this question, how do we take up our cross, another scene between Jesus and Peter has been coming to my mind. Not here in Matthew 16, but further on in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is about to be arrested before his trial and crucifixion, he's there with his disciples, with Peter, who sees an approaching, approaching company of guards, and Peter takes up not a cross, but a sword, and he strikes one of the guards. And again, we see Peter's faith misapplied. He's thinking to himself, Jesus, you are the true king, and I need to ensure that nothing happens to stop you from taking your throne. And so he tries to cut somebody down. And Jesus, in that place, his response is instructive. He heals the guard who is arresting him to put him to death, and he offers himself over. Jesus' life is not taken from him. It's laid down as a free sacrifice. And so what we see in Peter's gut response is what I think we often feel in our lives when we are faced with opportunities to take up our cross, which is that we would rather take up a sword. We would rather take up a tool of control, of self-protection and self-preservation. Often we find ourselves, when we feel out of control, operating at our very worst. When we operate from a place of fear or control or self-preservation or protection, we take up a tool of destruction to get what we want. So I want you to think about what are the swords in your life? What are the things that you find yourself reaching for rather than the cross of laying down your own preferences? Maybe for you, this is seen in your wealth. Do you find yourself purchasing in a way that seeks to insulate yourself from the needs of the world, that seeks to build up your own status, that seeks comfort and ease rather than considering what it would mean to be a steward of God's resources to meet the needs that exist? Or maybe you see yourself taking up a sword in your career where you're thinking about how can I advance in this organizational hierarchy? Or this is where I sit on the org chart, which means these people underneath me need to serve me rather than how can I serve them? Or making business decisions that are ultimately rooted in a pursuit of profit rather than the good of people. Maybe you experience this in your sexuality where you desire intimacy and gratification and so you pursue that in whatever way feels right to you, regardless of if it's the covenant of marriage that God has given us. Or maybe it's experienced in a much more plain, everyday kind of way where when you're thinking about your relationships with your friends, your spouse, your kids, you're thinking about all that they ask from you, all the things they ask from your time, and you take up the sword of your schedule. And you say, I'm not going to give my time because I need time for me for rest, for care. I can't lay this down. If I lay this down, I will never get a moment to myself. And I think in all of those things, what I want you to hear, none of those are bad in and of themselves. It's not bad to make purchases for what we need. It's not bad to advance in our career or to make a profit. It's not bad that we would long for intimacy. It's not bad that I would want space for self-care. What goes wrong in us is that when our operating principle becomes, I am entitled to something, 
I'm owed something, and I'm going to ensure I get it by taking up a tool of destruction so the people around me must behave and obey what I have said. We have gone away from what Jesus asks us to do, which is taking up our cross. When, when we see Peter taking up his cross, the great irony of what he's doing there is, imagine if it were a modern action movie, and Peter, he puts all these guards to rest. What is he left with? Jesus doesn't go to the cross. Peter doesn't get what he ultimately needs, which is to be reconciled to the Father and have the systems of sin in our world put to subjugation under the ascended Lord. Peter's not in a better place. And I wonder how often in us taking up our swords, we are short-circuiting the work of God in our own hearts, where we are putting to rest things that God wants to do in us by the crosses he presents to us in our lives. This is what Paul is writing about in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to slip this, skip this one. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is getting at this idea. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we see modeled in Jesus is that the one person who, if he could be entitled to anything and everything, it's him, chose to lay down what he was owed in order that he might serve others by pouring out his life. And in those places of our life where we feel entitled to something, the question before us is, will we lay it down entrusting ourselves to the care of God, who has given his son for us as a guarantee of his love toward us? Now, I have some application here I want to get to in a second, but I want to pause for a moment. And I want to say really clearly, we do not save ourselves by taking up our own cross. What I don't want you to hear me saying in this sermon is you achieve your own salvation if you do X, Y, Z. That's not what I'm putting forward. Jesus is the one who saves us by his cross. And the crosses that we are called to take up are crosses of response that are formational for us into being made like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So we rest in the completed work of Christ and then we respond by imitating him. We lay down our lives to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And again, that is what Jesus identifies as Peter's problem in 1623. He says, your mind is on the things of the world, not on the things of God. So our question ought to be, how can I renew my mind? How can I get my mind on the things of God so that Jesus's response of offering up his life would become native to me? And this is what Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 12. In verse 3, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. If we're able to do what Paul is talking about in verse 3 here, if we're able to not think of ourselves as more highly than we ought to, then we will be able to take up the cross. Take up those moments where we lay down a sword, our own preference, and instead choose to serve other people. So how do we do this? Well, you can't. You cannot. But the Holy Spirit in you can. 
which is like a really terrible Jesus juke, but I want you to hear that. The Holy Spirit in you can, and you cannot apart from him. Verse one, what Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this phrase, living sacrifice, has been stuck in my head as I've been preparing this sermon. Living sacrifice does not make sense. It is an oxymoron. For something to be a sacrifice is for it to be put to death. You can't have a living sacrifice. So what is Paul trying to get at here when he's putting this phrase before us? What he's saying is, as you put yourself to death, something new will come alive in you. As you allow God to put the flesh in you, the desires in you to death that are of a self-absorbed nature, of a sinful nature, the Spirit is given room to make something new come alive in you, this taste of you being a new creation in Jesus. If we want to be renewed in our minds, if we want to be those who live as Jesus, we must be willing to take up our cross because in dying we live. If you can think about Ezekiel chapter 37 where he's looking out at this valley of dry bones, the thing that brings them to life is the breath of the living God, the Holy Spirit breathed out on them and in the same way in our dry bones the Spirit breathes new life into us. And because of that we don't have to be afraid of offering our lives up as sacrifices. It's actually the means by which we will be made new creations. I was recently talking with a cornerstoner who had received some really tough news. And he was processing through it. He was giving voice to grief, some prayers, some hopes, some fears. And it struck me, as he was telling me about what was going on, he said, now, of course, the first thing I did when I learned about this was I started thinking about how we could help other people who may be in the same situation. And at one point in the conversation, I stopped him and I said, sorry, you just said, of course, I started thinking about other people. That's not an of course response. The of course response to what you're feeling would be, God, what are you doing? And how can I protect myself? And how can I ensure that everything's going to be okay? For this brother to have said, of course, the first thing I thought of was other people was an indication to me that time and again, he has taken up a cross in his own life so that out of habit, he lives oriented towards the needs of other people. That is what God wants to accomplish in us. And both the good news and the hard news in this is the Christian life is inherently a life of difficulty. Because if we want that to be the habitual response in our hearts and lives, that I would think about the needs of other people before I think about myself, I will have to daily choose to take up my cross. I will have to take the path of formation through the cross, but the good news is that it bears fruit. So if you want a renewed mind, you need the Holy Spirit. You also need a couple other things, at least a couple other things. I want to put two more before you, before we end today. The first is that you need to be restoried. All of us live from a story we're telling ourselves, where we are the main character. And I don't even necessarily mean that in a sinful way. How else could you experience the world? You are you. right? You're the main character of your life. And we need to be restoried away from only and constantly thinking of ourselves towards thinking of other people. And one of the ways we go about restoring ourselves is by participating in the grand narrative of Scripture. And so every week when you come to church and you gather as this body, I love that our sanctuary is angled like it is so that when you're looking out, you don't just see me, but you see each other. 
And when you're singing songs, you're not just seeing words, you're seeing other people around you worship. Our worship is fundamentally founded upon this idea that you do not worship in a vacuum. Every time you come into church, it's an invitation for you to be restoried, to attune yourself to the people around you, their desires, their needs, their hopes, their fears, their wants. And every week when we open up scripture, it's an opportunity for us to be restoried into this grand narrative of the God who is redeeming all things by the blood of his son. And every week when we gather and we take the communion meal, it's an opportunity for us to be restoried into remembering Jesus poured out his life so that I might pour my life out for others. So we need to be restored. We need to grow comfortable in that story. The other thing that I would point you to this morning is that we need community. One thing that's really instructive about this moment between Peter and Jesus, in which Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus in turn rebukes Peter, is that Jesus is able to say, Peter, your mind is on the wrong things. Which just makes me wonder, who in your life knows you, you well enough to be able to potentially say to you, hey, your mind is on the wrong things. And what I'm not trying to do at Cornerstone is create a culture where we start calling each other Satan and rebuking each other. I'm saying, how can you, in all charity and all humility, be known by other people? How can you be vulnerable with other people in a way that they would know your mind well enough that in honesty, they could come to you and say, hey, I wonder if you're taking up a sword here instead of taking up your cross. Again, in all charity, in all humility. But we need that. We need people who can come beside us and with an outside view, getting outside of myself, say, do you, do you think you're taking up a sword here? Do you think you're trying to defend something you're entitled to? Or do you think you're laying down your life in the service of others? Friends, the invitation before you this morning is, will you take up a sword or will you set that down in order to take up a cross? To insist not on what you're entitled to, not what you are rightfully owed in an earthly sense, but on what you can give to other people. And that has to be rooted in an understanding and an internalization that you have been utterly cared for in Christ. That in him taking up his cross, you are free to take up your own because he will ensure that you are not deprived anything that you need. In dying to yourself, something new will be formed in you. You will become alive in a new way, tasting what God is bringing to all of his creation. So with that, let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we need you. The call of Matthew 16, 24 is incredibly difficult. I think back on myself as a 21-year-old goober who thought that I could do this by sheer power of will. And God, I can't. We can't. But by your Holy Spirit, we can. We can crucify the flesh and its desires and see new life come. And so for the people of Cornerstone, I ask, would you give us the freedom, the courage, the boldness to put down the swords that we feel, those ways that we try to control and to manipulate to ensure we get what we want and instead would we take up a cross of self-denial that seeks the good of others first. And again, Jesus, we ask this not from a posture of trying to save ourselves, but wanting to see more of you in us. We offer this in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.
We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.